Okay, we are live. So, Abby, welcome back to the Fuck Therapy podcast. I am so grateful for the opportunity to have a chat to you about this. I was on live. You reached out to me. You said, how about I share my story? And I was like, what an awesome idea. Two seconds after you wrote that, what was your thoughts? Oh, fuck. (laughs) What the fuck? Considering you'd just been talking about some of the horror stories you were hearing, the realisation that my life had been a horror story, that took a moment to process. (laughs) But I believe you had some amazing friends from the live. I did indeed. That reached out, gave you some support and said, what the fuck are you doing? They were just, well, no, they weren't even, what the fuck are you doing? They were just like, oh my gosh, like, yes, do it. You got this. Like the positivity from them both was just amazing. That is awesome. You know who you are if you're listening to this. Massive shout out to you. Yes, definitely. Um, So thank you so much for your support. So today, the subject that we are talking about. Me. (laughs) One of my not so favorite topics, surprisingly. Well, I think it's an incredible topic because I think you're an incredible woman. Um, For those um, that are out there, Abby's delighting in these compliments going her way. So much. She she sort of shares delight with a really screwed up look on her face. (laughs) Yeah. So I think before we jump into it, um, I'm going to do a slightly different trigger warning to the one we normally do. Beautiful. I'm going to do a content warning because I know exactly where we're going with this. Yes. And I think people do need to be prepared. 100%. Absolutely. (laughs) So today we're digging into my story. My life story is going to include sexual assault, child abuse, suicide and self-harm, pregnancy loss, termination, mental illness, eating disorders and borderline personality disorder. Any of these topics trigger you, take some time out. Put me down. Walk away. Go enjoy, do something pleasurable, get yourself back to a baseline, settled, and if you choose to pick this back up again, woohoo, yay, and if you choose not to, I'm not going to know, so there's <laughs> no guilt. Um, Absolutely. Now, that is a whole host of topics, but the reality is, that is your life. That's well, that, that, ha- that has been your journey. Yes. That's what you've experienced. That's what's the end of the day, created you to be the woman that you are today. And you're a powerhouse today. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So before we jump into my story, I do want to make a a few points. Let's do it. Um, Number one, if you know me in real life and you haven't heard my full story, please don't think that it's because I don't trust you or I'm hiding parts of myself. I probably haven't shared because I didn't feel that my sharing would add anything to our relationship. I don't want this to change who we are to each other and I don't want this to change our relationship. I don't want or need your pity. I don't need to be handled with kid gloves. I want to be the same Abby that you know and love. If I'm your big sis, I want to keep being your big sis. If I'm a flirt who picks you up and hits on you when you're sad, I want to keep being that person. And if I'm the person who cracks jokes about the workman's sex toys while we're chatting, that is the Abby that I want to keep continue to be for you. Number two. If you're one of the few people I've sent this podcast to, then know that I want or need you to know my story, and this seems like the easiest way to share it. You're in control of the listening. You can put it down when it gets too much, pick it up again when you have the spoons, and it's not that big thing of, oh my gosh, I've just info-dumped my life story on you, and that sucks. (laughs) Um, Number three, I'm always open to respectful questions and conversations about my story, but please, before engaging, take a moment to acknowledge that by telling my story, I lose ownership over it. I no longer control who knows what about me. 
And as we dig more into my story, I hope that you can understand why this is such a big deal for me. I don't know who's listening to this, what they're thinking as they listen, or how they're responding, so please be kind. And fourth, Jamie, I just want to acknowledge you. I think there will be parts of this story that you're hearing from me for the first time. I know I wrote them in homework as generalized topics, and to your credit, while you ask clarifying questions, we never actually dug into the generalized topics. Yeah. So thanks for the time and space to tell my story. You are so welcome. Um, it's been an honor and a privilege um, not only to work with you, but our, I mean, if we dig into our story a little bit, um, just to preface it, um, where Abby and I, Abby reached out to me from TikTok, you know, and basically went, who is this joker? Says so a couple of things that might resonate with me. Let me just check him out with a little more clarity, you know. And I must have said something. <laughs> and you're like, hmm. <laughs> All right, you've sparked my interest. But from there, Abby and I have now been working with each other for 18 months. Nearly, yeah. Something like that. Um, Abby has gone through my RISE program. Um, Abby has helped me construct and actually improved the RISE program has helped me with the Boundary Management program. Um, in fact, I've recently recorded the online version of the Boundary Management program. Abby was here, and it was from An Abby's energy in the room um, that enabled me to deliver it the way I did, so thank you so much for that. In addition to that, we have, you've moved from... New Zealand. New Zealand. Over here. Over here. Yeah, um, and we'll dig into that a whole lot more. And and we've become friends, um, and it's a privilege and an honour to do that. Um, and although you've only met my wife a few times, I do get that feeling that, you know, you do. she's your preference over me. I, I've only said it a couple of times that if you guys ever split up, I get jelly in the divorce. <laughs> and you're not the only one that said that. Oh, no. I, like, in fact, great. I don't think anyone yet has put their hand up for me. <laughs> like, we'll take you on weekends that we've got shared care with other people. <laughs> like, we'll be like, okay, well, I don't have jelly. Oh, I suppose better be friends with Jamie for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's delightful. She is absolutely beautiful. So, Abby, over to you. Um, where would you like to start? So I'd like to start with trauma is not a competition. Yeah. To turn it into one is not helpful. That's an invalidating experience across the board. Um, so if you're on the side of having less trauma in the comparison, knowing someone has it worse doesn't take away your pain and suffering. If anything, it just pushes you into silence, stopping you from getting the help you need and deserve. And if you're on the side of having more trauma, then you're left questioning if you should be more broken than you are, you're left doubting your coping mechanisms and wondering if you should just throw on the towel and quit. Um, I love the saying that if someone is drowning, it doesn't matter if it's in three feet of water or 30 feet. They aren't going to breathe until they break the surface. Yeah. So I do not share my story to be the yardstick by which anyone compares their story because we'll never know how the other would have reacted in in their life. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I, I'm never going to know if Bob... Charlie sitting out there listening to this would have handled my story better or if I would have handled their story better. Yeah. Like, we just don't know. So no, absolutely don't not. Don't do it. <laughs> and I love the fact that you raise that because I talk to so many people and they say, you know, I was talking to a woman this morning mm -hmm. who actually shares a similar story. But as a consequence of sharing that depth of story, she was actually like, I, I, I really, I didn't want to take up your time when you're needed so desperately from other people. Yeah. And, and that... Uh, each and every single one of you um, is as important as the other. 
There's no hierarchic, hierarchical structure. Um, and as Abby says, you know, trauma is not a competition. If you're grappling with something, um, then please always feel comfortable to come forward. Yep. 100%. Um, so as Jamie touched on before, the idea of sharing my story came out of his lives. Um, all too often I see comments, do you work with people who have BPD, CPTSD, childhood trauma, sexual assault, or, oh, I have a lot of trauma, too much to share. Um, or my favorite, traditional therapy hasn't helped me, so I'm beyond help. Mm, like that yeah. one every time just guts me to the core. Yeah. Um, I want to hug them, tell them they're not alone, and answer infant emphatically that this can change their lives like having put in the work with you i 100 percent believe in the rise program um the use of theories and tools that i know to be based on trauma research are combined in unique ways which works and i'm kind of proof of this oh, yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump into my story let's do it buckle up let's do it um, so from ages zero to six, there was nothing truly significant. I was the baby of your stereotypical well-off white family in rural New Zealand. Um, my brothers are 10 and 12 years older than me, so they were both at boarding school by the time I was three, and I barely remember them coming home. So I basically grew up as an only child to older parents. Um, I was very young starting primary school. Mum was working in the the school library so I'd go into the new entrance or like kinder class one day a week from about the age of three um super confident kid like <laughs> so much confidence like I look back on me and go the audacity um so while we were packing to move I found some of my old school reports right and <clears throat> one of them was from when I was five and it had the example that I'd been caught by the principal drawing on the netball courts in chalk. And as I'm being reprimanded, I interrupted him to just point out that if he didn't want me drawing on the on the courts in chalk, he shouldn't have left the chalk where I could find it. Well, I think it's a fair argument. <laughs> fair argument. <laughs> That's confidence. <laughs> That's confidence. Like, I look back on me and go, wow. Like. <laughs> yeah. I want to be that person. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people are going to be listening to this and go, wow, you sound confident. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right now I am. <laughs> you know, remember, We will dig into this. Remembering that they're listening to a, a day that we've chosen, a time that we've chosen that I've got the spoons to do this. Yes. I hope. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that... In any given moment, yeah, I can come across as the most confident person in the world mm. because I lock all my all my shit away and this is the person I need to be in this moment. Yep. You know, and there are days that the people that know me know that I am not confident. Yeah. The days that I ring them crying and going, oh my gosh, I just need, need you to just talk at me for 10 minutes until I can get myself together enough to participate in the conversation. Yep. I don't care if you just sing at me for 10 minutes. I just need to hear a voice that I can focus on and bring myself back down. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I sound confident, not always the way. Um, so, yeah, I wish at that point I could say the end. What a happy life. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. There's a little turn. Just a little one. Um, so when I was seven, things started to change. Bullying at my very small th school became a thing. 
Um, initially it was being excluded from playing games or being teased and eventually turned physical with fight clubs. Because, you know, seven, eight-year-olds, fight clubs, why not? Sure. We used to go down the back of the field behind the trees where the teachers couldn't see us and, yeah, I was a passive child. So I didn't like seeing people hurt. I wasn't inclined to hit back in Fight Club. So it basically just was like 20 minutes of Abby getting hit. Um, And the school wouldn't deal with this. It was just a, oh, you know, yeah, that's a bit sad that that's happening. Real passive. Um, At home, I was told bullying builds character. Bullying builds character. There we go. Um, So... Yeah, you know. Completely invalidated. A hundred percent. And it just... Turn to the people where you thought you might get some protection. No, no. Um, So academically, I was pitted against the ringleader. Um, We were competing for sort of top of the class. And there was pressure from all sides to be the best. Yeah. Um, at home, things were also starting to change. The first sign that something was different was the day I came home from school. I was a little bit late. I'd helped a teacher clean up or, you know, just, yes, it was a long time ago. My time memory is foggy, Yeah. but it wouldn't have been much more than five, 10 minutes late. Yeah. So not like I've caused my parents to worry this huge amount about, oh my gosh, my child has been stolen on the way home from school. Yeah. Um, I get home, the door's locked. But the cars are out the front. I can hear people moving inside. And just nothing. There was no response to my knocks. Um, And I remember waiting for ages to be let inside. Really upset, really confused about what was going on. Um, It became more and more regular with shorter and shorter amounts of time of just being locked out. Yeah. And so... And so eventually they would open the door? Eventually they would, yeah. And what sort of time frame are we talking? Time's foggy, but I would say it was sort of an hour, maybe two, of just sort of hanging out outside. Right. Which... Knowing they're there. Knowing they're there. The cars are both there. But being cast out deliberately. Yeah. And are you recognising at this stage that you are being punished or something... I don't even think I'm recognising that it's a punishment. I'm not making the link between me being late home from school and me right. being locked out. It just seemed You're really just... random that oh, some days I come home and I'm not allowed inside. Okay. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, and so one day I make the decision to jump the fence and go to the neighbour's place. Like me and the neighbour, kid had grown up together, really good friends. So normal that I would head over and play. I'd barely made it over the fence. So we just take one of those um, like square wire fences, like chicken wire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just push it down, jump over. Yep. <laughs> um, and hit it over. I barely made it over the fence when my parents come out. Fake smiles and big apologies for, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. We didn't hear you knocking. Oh, you must be so upset. Come inside. You know, we'll make a sandwich. Like real friendly and... Yeah, just not quite the right vibe. So I'm suspecting with this because you've jumped over the fence and the neighbours are present. Yep. Right. So we're putting on a facade for the neighbours. Very much so. Um, So I come inside and this was the first time, but by no means the last, that I was hit for making them look bad in public. 
basically. Um, it was the start of backhanded apologies. I'm sorry I had to hit you. If you'd been, if you'd waited on the step like a good girl, then I wouldn't have had to hit you. And we're talking a slap on the bottom, a slap on the legs. Oh, we're talking a slap to the face and a punch to the stomach. Right. So Dad worked as a travelling salesman. It wasn't unusual for him to be on the road for weeks at a time. Um, so days that I'd come home from school and that he was home, it was like this rare treat, like super exciting. Um, one particular day, Mum was still at work. So he took the opportunity to show me what love was. Um, I was told that I'd be taken away if I said anything to anyone. Um, I wasn't liked at school by kids my own age, and I figured that if I was taken away, I wouldn't be liked by anyone there either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was rewarded for showing love with treat foods that we never had in the house because mum was always on the latest fad diet. And, and sorry, just to pull this back a little bit... Um... At this stage, we're in between seven and eight years old. Yep. And, and and we know what we're saying when we're saying you were shown love. That's that's we're not talking about love there. No. Took me a long time to realise that that wasn't love, though. Yes. Yes. <laughs> very long time. Yes. Um. You know, it started out as very much just grooming. Oh, just. Sorry, I'm working on the use of that word because yeah. it's so minimising. Um, it was grooming, it was kissing, it was hand stuff. Um, yeah. So, and then this continued on, on, on a rare occasion as opportunity presented itself until it was penetrated, penetrated, penetrated. <laughs> did I get it right? No. I don't think I did. No, but. <laughs> I did. No. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. Um, take a drink, you know. Um, until it involved penetration with the grooming and the rewards continuing. Yeah. So I finally built up the courage to tell mum what was going on. And what age do you, what, do you think that was? That was that in that year? Yeah. Right. That would have been before I turned eight. And her response was the one of lovely mothers, I wish. So instantly took you down to the hospital, took you to the police station, validated you. Yeah. She told me I was a lying bitch and I was truly fucked in the head if to be telling st such stories. Um, she asked if I wanted to be taken away, just reinforcing that. And when I said no, she reminded me that I should not be saying these things. The very next day I was anally penetrated as punishment for sharing secrets. Um, and this continued to be a theme. Um, it was punishment for crying too much, for not being into the sex enough, um, or simply as an emotional release for an, an, um, a sadistic abuser. <sighs> Um, so intercourse continued to happen as the opportunity arose and I was physically punished on a whim. The All Blacks lost. My fault. The local rugby boys lost. My fault. The sky was up. My fault. Yeah. You know, and it got to the point where some days the only thing that I could figure I'd done wrong was the sun came up in the morning. So effectively what we've done is we've transitioned from to show you what love is, to now it's transitioned to recognition, you know, of your 
you've done something wrong. It was it was a combination of the two. So there was still the, you know, this is how you show love elements to it. But then there was also punishment involved in that as well. And it was just multifaceted. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So they're layering, layering the psychological abuse there. Yeah. Um, through justification of the physical abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so generally family social time with the extended family was with my dad's side of the family. Um, they're big drinkers with parties spanning days and not much in the way of adult supervision. Typically they were at my grandmother's house, which was on a farm. So it was like you need the general don't play on the tractors and, you know, the basic safety rules. Yeah. But go free. Leave the adults to drink. Yeah. Uh, so I was eight the first time I got drunk at one of these parties because there's no adult supervision. No one's going to notice a kid going to the going to the chili bin to pull out some alcohol. Yeah. Probably any adult sort of in the vicinity would see it and go, oh, yeah, kid grabbing something for mum or dad yeah. or aunt or uncle. Like not a, oh, hmm. Maybe we should keep the eight-year-olds out of the beer fridge. Yeah. Um, I love the feeling of being drunk. Loved it. A little too much. One of my uncles must have mentioned to, to mum or dad that I'd been drinking. Um, you know, eight-year-olds aren't so great at being sneaky sneaky. No. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, and I was terrified of the repercussions. Like, I still remember the, oh, I'm so much trouble here. Yeah. Like, oh, shit. But nothing ever came of it. In fact, I was encouraged to drink before being abused. Um, looking back on it now, I suspect because it made it made me more compliant. Yeah. Um, but who knows? Yeah. So the sexual abuse had been continuing on, essentially behind mum's back. If she wasn't home, dad was, things were happening. Yeah. Just before my 10th birthday. So this has been going on fairly regularly for two and a half, three years. Yeah. Mum caught us. And rather than stepping in to help me and put a stop to everything, she joined in. Um, and over the years, I've had it suggested to me that she was probably abused herself and she was just doing what it took to survive. And but it's all well and good. She was a fucking adult. I was the child. I needed protection. And she should have defended me. 100%. And this, um, I mean, for those listening, you'll hear the description, but that... The description, the way it's being spoke about and so forth, where you start understanding, you know, the depths of where a child brain has gone to um, when we're talking about things like this. It's like it, it's all well and good. It's like it's not well and good in any way, shape or form. But that's that justification process. You go, that's your mum. Yeah. You know, um, we often talk about um, parenting and you go, there is only one requirement for, a, for two people two individuals to become parents, and that is to do, you know, um, do the deed, if you like. Um, doesn't have to be done well, and they become parents. It doesn't qualify them as such. Um, and here you go, an example of absolute horrific abuse. Yeah. So she's joined in. Yeah. Um, and because of this, it's become more regular. It's now not just when mum's away. It's... <laughs> so it's become, uh, you know, the new sport. Yeah. Um almost daily at some points yeah um and started being filmed but the rewards got bigger so it was newer toys it was trips away it was and to my mind that made it okay 
Yeah. You know, because, yeah, sure, things were shit and I didn't enjoy it and da-da-da-da-da at this stage. But then we'd, we'd go on holidays and we'd have fun and we'd be like every other family that we saw on TV and, you know, it'd be like like we were an ordinary family. The reality is this is your first time, <laughs> we, we only get one shot going through these years and that was your only reference point. Yeah. So it's easy to look back now and put a level of justification over it. Yeah. And this is the first time you've gone through this. The yeah. only time you've gone through your only reference point. And what's to tell you this isn't normal? Exactly. So to you, you're going, I can't place it. This feels horrific. But at the same token, it's normal. this is what mummies and daddies do. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so following this, I was prostituted out to dad's boss one night. Um, in exchange for dad getting a promotion at work, I was expected to spend a night with his boss and be a good girl. And how old were you then? It would have been 10, 10, 11. Yeah. Yeah. So we got an international trip to celebrate dad's new promotion. From there, it became commonplace for me to attend parties with the expectation that I would service guests sexually and be shared amongst them. Um, I was so broken down that I just figured this was normal. Yeah. That, yeah, this is my reality. Yeah. Didn't try to fight, didn't try to argue out of it, didn't try to reason. and Not that it would have done me any good, but there was no no comprehension of saying no. Yeah. So I felt trapped. School was better than home, but it still wasn't safe. Um, I started self-harming. And looking back, I have no idea how I thought I was going to get away with this, given that I was regularly naked. Yeah. But, you know... It was the only thing that I could do at that point to, to manage all of the stuff going on with me. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, I get it. I mean, at this age, you've only got a certain amount of tools. <laughs> we don't have the resources we have now. We don't have the experience we have now. No. And therefore, you were grasping at anything. Yeah. Anything. And that was where you landed. And, you know, we're... You know, the average kid by 10, 11, 12 has been taught some some form of self-regulation or emotion regulation. You know? Yes. Typically, you know, don't have a tanty when you don't win snakes and ladders. Yeah. The, I didn't realise that having a temper tantrum for snakes and ladders was an option. Yeah. Unless you were an adult. Oh, listen, adult, it's compulsory to have a temper tantrum. I mean, particularly in you know. But um, <laughs> the reality of the subject here is... That's typically how kids learn. They play little games and so forth, and regulation is taught through that. Yeah, but you I've know, had none of that. And you've had none, no, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Um, so my punishment for self-harming, because, you know, your kid's self-harming, let's punish them for this. Mm. I was tied down and burnt with, with candles for hurting their property. That was the messaging I was given, was you are being punished for hurting our property. Yeah. Um, when I was caught smoking for the first time, I was tied down, told that if I screamed, they would slit my throat. They pressed lit cigarettes into my flesh. I've still got the scars on my thighs. Yeah. Um, things at school started to get a little bit better when I started high school. Um, I found a group of misfits to hang out with and academically I was finally being challenged and excelling. Um, I was desperate at this time to hear the world. Words, I'm so proud of you. Yeah. From my parents. Still waiting. Still hopeful. But aware that it's a hope, not an expectation. 
Um, That's a little bit of an in-joke for those that don't know. Part of my program, particularly in the boundary management side, is to understand the difference between hope and expectation. But I understand where you're going. And, and the reality is that there's probably zero hope or expectation, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because we've placed that. But 100%. But, yeah, but, you, but you found a place now in high school where there's a level of where you felt potentially... I felt accepted. Yeah, form of acceptance is beautiful. Yeah, you know, um, things were still <laughs> getting yeah. worse at home, but at least I wasn't regularly being picked on at school, isolated at school. Um, you know, I had people that I could have a laugh with yeah. and feel that, oh, not every human in this world hates me. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get my ears pierced. You know, I'm 13, 14. I want to get my ears pierced. Like any other kid. Yep, get it. Um, so I waited until after a party. I'd learned that this was the time I was most likely to get a yes. You know, I'm not dumb. I've, I've learned to manipulate my situation. Survival mechanisms kicked in. Yeah. Um, they flew into a rage, again, for me trying to deface their property. Um, and they calmed down. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it when we get home. I had no reference point once again for people going to like a, a, a tattoo parlor and getting them pierced. So it was just like, oh yeah, you know, okay, we'll oh, do that's it. how it's done. We'll do it when we get home, and I did. When we got home, I got my ears pierced with a nail gun. With a nail gun. Yeah, um, I was hit by a stray nail, um, and unusually, I was marked. So typically. I only ever was hit or hurt in places that no one was going to see. Yeah. Um, I learned to explain away any marks that did become visible as, oh, you know, I'm just really clumsy. Yeah. And that's language that still follows me through today. Yeah. Is the belief that I am clumsy. You say something often enough, you start to believe yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. But as a payoff for, for getting hit by the nail gun, I got my first phone. Right. Um, the expectation was that I paid for the credit on my phone. Um, and I discovered these online chat rooms. I would send nudes to guys in these chat rooms, um, in exchange for phone credit. I was 14. I was just about to say, clarify age here, 14. We're at high school, you're now 14 years old. And I mean, you'd been groomed up into this point that your body was the place in which when you want reward. Yeah, 100%. This is what we use to get what we want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not, not outside of the realm of normal. Not at all. Um, so I eventually met up with... And it's not like you, at that point in time, put a significant value on it either. Oh, fuck no. Other than an exchange of goods and services. Yeah, you know. Oh, I get 20 bucks credit for sending a photo of my boobs. Like, cool, a three-second thing to take a photo of them and send them to someone. Yeah. 20 bucks. Sweet. Yahtzee. So I met up with one of the men that I'd met in this chat room um, while I was on holiday and considered him to be my consensual first. Ignoring the predatory age difference there. So he was 42, I was 14. Right. But but it was consensual. It was consensual. And, and at that point in time, you had no reference to say that was... That was wrong or, you know, it should be within my yeah. age limit, you know. No. It was, I'd chosen him, therefore, this is okay. Yeah. Well, he fit the demographic. <laughs> Yeah, well, I didn't really have a demographic at that point. You know, it was everyone from 16 
up. Right. So at 14, I fell pregnant. Um, I was beaten severely for getting pregnant. And then the next day after the scan revealed I was in the second trimester, I copped another hiding for keeping it a secret. So you waited I had the four no weeks. idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I literally had no idea what was going on. Yeah, of course not. Um, so I was immediately booked in for a termination. Although to this day, I'm not sure it was, wasn't the beatings that terminated that pregnancy. Yeah. Um, so child protective services were involved after this. Yeah. They, they finally got involved. I was interviewed in front of my parents, you know, the child protection worker sitting there going, are you safe at home with mum and dad sitting on the couch? Right there. So I was terrified. Not only of getting the answers wrong and being punished, but of getting the answers right and being taken away. All my life I'd been heard that being taken away was this really, really bad thing. Yeah. And I believed it because why would they lie to me? Yeah. So this was investigated. And I say that with air quotes because <laughs> I don't believe that that was a fucking investigation. But their investigation found no evidence of abuse. No, a 14-year-old's pregnant and there's no evidence. Of course not. No, course, no. I mean, how could there be abuse in that? Um, 100%. No. Yeah. Um, so my drinking at this point became heavier. I was drinking daily with spirits being my, my alcohol of choice. I was very close to my paternal grandmother, often feeling like she was the only one in this world who loved me. Um, it, but I didn't have the courage to tell her what was going on. I didn't want her to turn on me the same way my mum had turned on me. She died when I was 15 following a six-month battle with cancer. At this point, my behaviour at school deteriorated. I was mandated to attend drug and alcohol counselling, which was the only thing our school could offer without parental consent. Yeah. Because every time the school contacted my parents, it was just, oh, you know, yep, we'll talk to her. Her behaviour will be better. And for the next couple of weeks, you can guarantee my behaviour was on point. Yeah. Because... <laughs> I'd had a good tune-up. So they've got you earmarked as a rebellious adolescent. Yep. Yeah. You know, that, that ripped white kid that can just get whatever she wants with a, oh, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> Completely missing all the signs. Yeah. So the day of my grandmother's funeral, I was expected to attend school in the morning. Like, this is the person, like, my person. We'd been on holidays together, like, um, all through her cancer battle, I was the one that was at the hospital with her um, straight after school. Like, I, I used to catch the bus from school straight out to hers. Um, I'd do, like, personal cares, whatever yeah. she wanted for hours. Like, yeah. she was my person. And I think one thing most of the listeners here will understand is that person outside of their parents. Yeah. They would understand that. Yeah. So, I was expected to go to school in the morning, come home at lunchtime, and attend the funeral after lunch. Um, and I had expectations of behaviour that were clearly laid out before we left for the church. I wasn't to cry. I wasn't to disgrace my grandmother by acting out. And I was to have no, no behaviours that would reflect badly on us as a family. Yeah. <laughs> I was filled with rage. One of the few times that I can remember at this stage of my life feeling anything that wasn't terror or pain. Yeah. Yeah, I the, the I wasn't allowed to cry. So I got up and spoke at her funeral. Yeah. And I just remember looking out and seeing everyone in the audience bawling. But I knew I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. And how did you channel that emotion? I knew things would be worse for me if I did. So, right. the, 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 so again, you were led by fear. Yeah. 
So that was yeah. just shut down. Like there was no crying. Yeah. It wasn't going to happen. Um, but this was one of the first, this was the first time I got stoned. Once again, all loved the feeling. Yeah. Um, that just the feeling of being free of not giving a shit about anything. Yeah. Of just being able to relax. So my life continued to be abused at home, parties as required, and maintain a positive facade in the community. Do nothing to besmirch the family name. Yeah. I fell pregnant again at 16. I was beaten until I started to bleed and then taken to the doctor who was told my boyfriend had done this when he found out I was pregnant. Um, Child Protective Services not involved because, oh no, clearly 16, boyfriend, you know. Yeah. Normal, normal. So... One of the few things I was allowed to do was I was allowed to work, which defies, like, looking back, it's like, why would you let me out in the community to work? Mm. But it was about that facade. Yeah. You know, so, oh, look how great our daughter is. She's holding three jobs. She's excelling at school. She's in the top 2%. You know, she's she's there. She's doing this. Yeah. So it, it looked good for them. So they allowed me to work. I forged their signatures on the paperwork for a student exchange made sure that their friends in the community knew that I was going on this exchange before I went home to tell them. Right. So it was paid for. It was booked. I had got everything I needed and made sure that there were key people in the community that knew I was going. So when they forbade me from going, I shrugged and just said, oh, so what lie are you going to tell your friends that as to why I can't go? Because, you know, this person and this person and this person are really looking forward to seeing my journey. I was allowed to go. There we go. I was punished. Totally worth it. Um, so my year abroad was amazing. I was in a family that cared about me. I was doing well in school despite language difficulties. So I where did you go? Panama. Yeah. Central America. Yeah. I had friends and I was free, but to cope with everything that I carried, I developed an unsustainable drug habit. Right. So we were getting cocaine off the Colombian. Cartel? Yeah, pretty much. It was the line of it going from Colombia up to the United States. Right. And, you know, got dropped off along the way. And so, yeah, I developed a cocaine habit, which Panama, very sustainable, you know. Yeah. 20, 20 bucks worth of cocaine a week to keep me off my head all week, pretty much. Right. Close to $1,500 a week back in New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. So as much as I didn't want to leave Panama, given what an amazing experience it had been, I returned to New Zealand. I was 18, but moved back in with my parents. And for the first couple of weeks, everything was great. Just just enough to lull me into sort of this false sense of I was going to say, how are you feeling? You're going, two weeks, I'm back. I've kind of pulled the wool over their eyes to get out of here. Yeah. Did you think you'd got away with it? I did. You know, like I knew I'd been punished before I left, but I figured that a year away, maybe they'd done some personal growth. I knew I'd grown as a person, you know, and like when it didn't happen the first day I was back, it was like, oh, oh, okay. It didn't happen. So you were expecting when you came back a flogging? Oh, 100%. I was, I don't actually think I was expecting to live past that first night back in New Zealand. Right. Like I, uh, there was just this expectation that I'd come back and, yeah. So you're like, if I survive Panama, yeah, come home and then that's that. Yeah. Um, so it was a couple of weeks before the emotional game started and then only days later that the sexual abuse continued. I started community counselling at this time. I was self-harming daily and while I hinted at what was happening at home, whenever she asked me directly, I'd shut down, deny it, 
like it was so ingrained in me that we don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. We don't let others know what's happening. Yeah. So within a few months of being home, I moved out. Um, I moved in with a couple I'd met at the local bar. Yep. Um, and it was great. You know, I had my own space. Like I talk really fondly about this couple. Um, they had a dog that I just absolutely adored. You are a sucker for the pets. I really am. Um, and it was it was going really, really well. I was asked to leave due to the harassment they experienced at the hands of my parents. So my parents were coming around. They were ex- they were basically blackballing them from any of the shops in town. Like they were making this lovely couple's life a living hell. Yeah. Because they dared put me in a put me up. Yeah. I moved in with a Jehovah's Witness family and eventually converted to fit in. Um, and then <clears throat> within the public environment, my parents started to try to save me from the cult. Save you from the, yeah. You know, so it was this big thing about, oh, you know, we're just so concerned about her. She's she's involved in this very dangerous cult. And, you know, we just, we just want her to come home. And I think I eventually came to realize that I'd never be free while I lived in this very small town. Yeah. So I moved. Immediately got into a relationship and I found out I was pregnant just before my 19th birthday. I miscarried at nine weeks and he left me because I was defective. You were defective. Yeah. I picked up counseling again, but this didn't help. Yeah. You know, it it was just digging into everything I'd been through, which <laughs> wasn't going to work for me. Yeah. There wasn't, I don't think there was enough time at ever to talk through what I'd been through enough to get to the point where it was like, oh yeah, no, that doesn't bother me anymore. Yeah. Um, so my parents found me again and this was the start of eight months, 18 months, sorry, of constantly moving, couch surfing, doing whatever I, or whoever it took to survive. Yeah. Um, I was never in a town any longer than six weeks. I never had any more stuff that I could pack in 20 minutes and carry with me. Like, if it took me 20 minute, 21 minutes to pick, that was one minute too long. Yeah. Um, so I met this guy in Macca's. Well, what an establishment. Yeah, yeah. Um, he asked me to, and he asked to buy me a drink that night. Totally new experience. What do you mean you want to go on it? That sounds like a date. Like, you want to pay for me to have a drink in public? Right. Extremely flattered. New experience. Um, we met up, we had a blast, and he was just picture perfect gentleman. No pressure for sex. There was, you know, he walked me home, kissed me on the cheek, said good night, I'll call you in the morning. He rang me in the morning. So you're kind of thrown at this stage? I'm very oh. thrown. Unfortunately, he was heading back to Australia in a few days. Right. Um, he suggested he buy me a ticket and I could come over to visit. I said yes, because why the hell not? <laughs> <laughs> He promised that even if I got over there and things didn't work out, we could still be friends. No strings attached. <laughs> I'm young, dumb, and very naive in this regard, okay? I just want to say this. Listen, we're, 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 that's okay. He was lovely for the first two days of my 30-day holiday. Things quickly turned. My passport and cell phone went missing. He started becoming more and more aggressive with me. The sex became more violent, all on his his terms. Nothing I did was ever good enough. It was suggested and then stated that I needed to lose more weight to be attractive. I wasn't allowed out of the house on my own. Um, we were both smokers, and I'd left my cigarettes at home one day. Like We were just popping down to the shops. Didn't think I didn't think to grab them 
He had me wait in the car while he went to do something. After about 40 minutes or so, I grabbed one of his cigarettes and smoked it. I thought nothing of it until he made it known when we got home that I had stolen his cigarettes. And then the implication came of, well, if you can steal my cigarettes, what's stopping you from helping yourself to my wallet? At this stage, like, when we were home, like, I left my cigarettes on the coffee table, we'd both smoke them, no dramas. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Well, I mean, you weren't. Yeah, I I tried to explain myself, <laughs> which all got turned back on me. Yeah. I was stuck in a foreign country, no support, completely isolated and alone. And he had taken your, your passport. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I ended up calling the police from a phone box about day 25. I only had five days left before I was meant to get on the plane, but I didn't know if I was actually going to make it onto the plane. Yeah. So I rang from a phone box, explained the situation. They asked what my address was. I I didn't know. Yeah. I, I had to say, okay, right now I'm at this phone box. You walk down, you go past three streets and like gave them a literal turn by turn and then out a description of the front of the house. And I'm like, I don't know what street. I don't know what number. Yeah. And so they came in, they spoke to me, they spoke to him. They found my passport in the back of one of his drawers. It was returned to me and then I had an assisted flight home. I had blocked him on all social media, changed my phone number. And looking back, so many, so many red flags, so many narcissistic tendencies that... Yeah, but of which you'd been... But he was lovely. Yeah. You know, and... I often talk to people about, you know, they get, they they tell me stories like this and they go, I was so stupid. (laughs) And it's like, no, you weren't stupid. You didn't have reference points. No, and as bad as this was, it was still, to my mind, something I'd chosen. So it was still infinitely better than anything I'd gone through. Well, at the end of the day, with what you'd gone through, you know, and I remember the early days of, of, of our discussions and so forth, Everything was your fault regardless. Mm-hmm. It didn't, didn't matter whether whether it was your fault, whether it was someone else. It, didn't, it was irrelevant. It, wasn't, it was your fault. Yeah, 100%. That's what you believed to your core, but that's where the programming came in. Yeah. You know, when we go back to the origins of the story at seven years old and so forth and being groomed, mm-hmm. this is where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. So I kept running, moving around until I was 21. Um, I landed in Thames with Women's Refuge. Now, part of the conditions of me staying in the safe house were that I had to have a mental health assessment. And this is where I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and complex PTSD. So the recommended treatment was intensive DBT. Yeah. So the BPD label, I sort of see as a blessing and a curse. Like, I really resonated with the BPD label. Finally, I wasn't crazy. Yeah. But I don't think I fully understood the implications that this would have with treating professionals, um, the stereotypes that go with BPD, the misinformation populated by those in power, and just this belief by psychiatrists, psychologists, that people with BPD are treatment resistant. Why would I waste my time? Yep. And for those that don't know what BPD is. Borderline personality disorder. So for me, my borderline personality disorder was displayed in a number of ways. I'd push people that I cared about away so they couldn't hurt me or leave without me being able to know that it was because I wanted them to go. Yeah. I would have people that I liked on pedestals with unrealistic views of how good they were. And when they inevitably didn't meet my expectations that I'd put upon them, I would walk away. I'd push them off their pedestal like they're just trash. Yeah. I would have favorite people who I allowed to determine my worth. 
Um, so th- by way of interaction, like they only had two e- X's at the end of their text. Clearly they don't love me because I'm a horrible person. Yeah. They're having a sad day. So I've clearly done something wrong and deserve to be punished. I have no clear sense of what I liked and what I didn't like. It was all based on those around me. I spent a lot of time feeling empty, looking for the next thing that would cause me to feel some kind of emotion, which kind of drives my impulsive urges. So go shopping because I had a feeling or using substances, going on angry drives, pushing the car's ability to go fast and swing around corners just for the thrill of it. Um, No regard for my own safety. Uh, I had a terrible relationship with food, binge eating, starving and purging. Um, My self-harm and suicidal ideation were chronic. There were many days throughout my life that I didn't fantasize and romanticize death. And as I said before, self-harm was a daily ritual. Yeah. Um, There was a process I had to go through through for it. And if I got it wrong... I had to do it again and again and again until I got it right. There were numerous suicide attempts as I tried and failed to manage these symptoms. And although the attempts got further and further apart, they also got more and more lethal. Yeah. So it started off with yeah a suicide attempt, which was probably more a cry for help yeah. to my last attempt, which was, well, my last attempt at this stage, which was me gassing myself in a friend's car. I was caught moments before there would have been no chance of bringing me back. Hospitalized and luckily released with no lasting damage. So I have massive mood swings for no reason. And when I'm swinging, it's so hard to verbalize, but I describe it as there's an itch inside. Yeah. I, I tell people like I'm feeling scratchy. And to those that know me know that that's a, hey, I'm having massive mood swings. Yeah. Um, I'd pick fights and rage out, mostly verbally, with those like close to me, but I'd also physically pick fights with strangers. Yeah. Just so I could. And I was the disassociating queen, just switching off mentally whenever I felt threatened, even if that threat was my own mind. Yeah. Um, so through DBT, I was taught foundational skills that I was missing, mindfulness, interpersonal skills, distress tolerance, and emotion regulation. This helped with the behaviours I was exhibiting and allowed me to learn to communicate better with others. I hadn't dealt with the trauma, and I think at this stage I just kind of expected that I would always have to manage those trauma symptoms, as debilitating as they were. Yeah. It was just my lot in life to carry this. Yeah. But at least I was better. I could I could talk to people. <laughs> um, so a couple of years after I finished DBT, I my parents suffered some health complications which led to some sort of epiphany. They reached out to me with a genuine apology and explained the steps that they'd taken to make changes in their lives. There was no expectation on their part of forgiveness or response, which was the first time ever. Yeah. And so very slowly I started to build a relationship with them. It started through email. And when it was like, okay, I'd test the waters. I'd, you know, I'd throw out a little bit of bait. And when they didn't react the way that I thought they would, and they reacted positively, it was like, okay. And so we built this very solid-ish relationship. Yeah. Um, it's very solid-ish. A solid-ish. Trauma, bonded type. Yeah. While it was good, I thought it was very solid. You know, yeah. It got to the point where if I was having an issue, my mum would be the first person I'd turn to. Yeah, right. You know, yep. um, 
if I needed help moving, I'd bring dad. Like, no question, like, he would show up. Yeah. 27, I met my current partner in a bar in my hometown. Um, A mutual friend was regularly playing a gig, and we got to know each other. So I suggested I grab his number so that if he was ever in my town, we could grab a drink together. A cheeky drink. Just a cheeky drink. Next weekend, he came to stay, and... Not even a year later, sold his house and business for us to live together in my rented flat <laughs> with my bestie. <laughs> like, I love this man. <laughs> um, so from there, the hours that I was doing at work got to me. Um, I dropped my self-care routines and went back mentally with my mental health very quickly. Um, so I was doing 15-hour days, four days a week, um, and then usually picking up three or four other shifts throughout the week. Yeah. I was, and just so people know the field you're working in. Uh, so I was, this was while I was doing placement. So I was working in mental health and then I was a support worker for intellectual disabilities, traumatic brain injury, specializing in challenging and antisocial behaviors. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, real easy work, like just go to work and switch off for the day. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Just some light stuff. Yeah. Nothing could trigger you there. No. No. Hell no. Um, so I was referred to a psychologist who helped with the symptom management, but we were very limited in the number of sessions we could have. So we never really overcame any trauma that was fueling my symptoms. Um, and that then again fed into this belief that I was only ever going to achieve symptom management. Yeah. Um. September 2020, I was sexually assaulted again. I'd returned home for mum's birthday. My brothers were supposed to be meeting me so we could all celebrate together, but for one reason or another, they couldn't come. So this was the first time that I'd been alone with my parents since I, I turned 18. Yeah. I'd, even though we'd built like this really solid relationship, it was... Supervised. Yeah. 100%, you know, and that might be supervised in public, like we'd meet at a restaurant, go for dinner, it might be like at the shopping mall, or, you know, we'd have a friend come over, you know, and hang out at their par- at my parents, like yeah. it was, it was always supervised. So I saw the red flags going into this, but I put them aside because I thought we'd move past all of this. Um, Dad said that he'd be the sober driver so mum and I could drink cocktails, like, again, Another red flag. Like, the only time I liked my dad during the teen years was if he'd been drinking. Nothing was ever going to happen if he, he'd been drinking. Right. Um, I thought that both mum and I had got pretty wasted. Apparently it was just me. Uh, when I got home, I helped mum into bed, video chatted with my partner, and went to bed myself. When I heard the door open, I froze. Someone was coming into the room. I was told to be a good girl for not screaming. My dad proceeded to get in the bed with me. Tell me that I'd been so naughty getting drunk in public. Um, clearly, I'd forgotten my training. So December, so September, October, November, three months later, yeah, was the first time I think I acknowledged out loud that what I was doing wasn't working. I didn't know what I needed, but I knew I needed help. Yeah, that's where you come in. <laughs> Stupid TikTok. TikTok was great. It had all the distractions, humor, validation, all rolled into one. So the first TikTok I saw. Um, was the one you did about if you've been sexually assaulted, here are a few things you probably haven't said to yourself. Yeah. I have duetted this a number of times because there have been a number of times I've needed to be okay with hearing this. (laughs) 
Um, I had a quick scroll through like some of your other videos. Decided to book a discovery session with literally nothing else to lose. Yeah. <laughs> like, what was the worst that was going to happen if this didn't go any further? Yeah. Um, so, what did you think after our first discovery session? Given that, uh, I know it was at the beach. I still remember the exact beach I was sitting at in my car. Yeah, I often just say to people, they say, you know, listen, when we have discovery sessions, can you do it on a mobile phone? I'm like, yeah. So often do people do it on the mobile phone. And, you know, I actually had a string of Kiwis that would meet me in the beach. Yeah, duh. <laughs> duh. So what did I think at the time? You know, it's one of those things. When you get a summary version via discovery, discovery session of this, it's less of what is said and more the way it's being said. Mm. And instantly, the thing that, that it's more a feeling than anything else that I got and it's this thing where you go, for me, it's like I have to be able to help this woman because I want her to see what I think I probably would have said to you. I want you to see what I see, right? Can't remember. No, I, and that doesn't, that but it's one of the things, but you, like, yeah. I, I, know, I know how I felt because it, these things, like listening to this, and I have no doubt that everyone that's listening to this you know, their hearts being ripped out, that they're not actually knowing where to place yeah. this. And of course, during that discovery session, we didn't go into this level of detail, but we, we went into a summary version of this. And it, and it was basically, you know, you throwing it out there going, My oh, life. Yeah, like, I've got to try something. Yeah. You know, and it's like, for me, all of my senses are going off going, I can... I, <laughs> Please let me help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So we started the rise journey. Yeah. Um, I started to learn what self-worth was, that I was allowed to feel good about myself. Took a few um, few face pulls, a little bit of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. There are still some days that you say this and I still tell you to fuck off. Yeah. Many. You know, um, I started to learn that I was powerful and strong and resilient and brave and all of these qualities that I didn't think I possessed because I was dirty and scared and unwilling to let go. Yeah. And just as an aside, while Rise was hard and like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, piece of cake, like it's hard fucking work. Yeah. It was still a shitload easier than anything I'd been through. Yeah. But it required me to dig deep. It required me to be honest with myself and explore ideas that were for other people, you know, feeling good about yourself. Yeah. Isn't just for every other person that I come into contact with. Yes. Uh, I am also allowed to feel good. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better at that one. <laughs> <laughs> you are. We did Christmas, my hometown with my parents, like, don't fuck with Christmas. It's an unwritten rule in our family that it doesn't matter what drama llamas you have going on with anyone in the family. When you show up for Christmas, you leave those drama llamas at the gate. You, you're you there, you're present, like it is family time, and we must smile and be the perfect family. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I'd ask my partner to do one thing. Do not leave me alone with mum and dad at all, ever. He made a judgment call while we were there that I'd be okay because I was having a nap. Um, and he didn't fully understand my story. Fairly heavy thing to lay on someone. And I'd sort of gone, yeah, I'm kind of past it. Meh. You know, let's just not go into that whole thing. So he'd gone out. And while he was out, mum and dad came into my room. They gagged me, 
held me down, sexually assaulted me. My phone rang and mum answered it. Um, she said I was in the shower, but that she'd pass the message on when I got out. It was my partner ringing for me to go pick him up from his friend's place. So I was forced to shower and then threatened into silence. And I tried to tell him what was going on. Yeah. But my own fear and my own shame got in the way. Yeah. And I just couldn't do it. Yeah. So a month later was the reopening of the bar where we'd met. So it had been sold and they'd done it up and it was the reopening. Um, our friend was playing again. It was sort of just that, that combination of things. So my partner talked me into going. Um, said that he had sorted accommodation. Now, I'm still working crazy. I was there slightly less crazy than when I had my breakdown, but... They were crazy, I remember. <laughs> it wasn't uncommon for me to be at work and still be at work two days later. Yeah, with bleeding feet because you did 20,000 steps and you forgot your shoes. Yeah, well, someone said there were zero excuses for his fitness <laughs> challenge. <laughs> There's so, another story behind that. <laughs> um, so he said he'd sorted accommodation. I didn't think to check where. He yeah. said he'd sorted it. I trusted him. Yeah. Well, accommodation, when you sort accommodation, it kind of implies some sort of remuneration paying for accommodation. Yeah. Um, but he found a cheaper alternative. I assumed he meant motel. He actually meant he'd talk to my parents and we could stay there. I didn't find this out till we got to the bar. Yeah. Because the whole, like, two and a half hour drive didn't occur to me to go, oh, so where are we staying? Oh, there were two hotel- two motels in the town. I figured it was either mm. the one we drove past or the one we were going to drive to. But, yeah, so... We get to the bar, he's like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to stay with your parents. It's okay. Like, we can all get on the person. They'll just drive us home. We'll come down, pick the car up in the ne- in the morning. And at this point, I'm a, I'm a big ball of no fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I, I can't do anything. Like, I'm absolutely paralyzed with fear. I can't say to someone, hey, no, 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 this isn't fucking happening. And start all that drama in, t- in a bar. Yeah. So... I had way too much to drink because how do you cope with big feelings but drink? Well. We get home, my partner passed out, you know, we'd been drinking very, very heavily. I think we'd done a couple of rounds of Jose Cuervo's 10 rounds, uh, 10 rounds with Jose Cuervo. And every time they say a round, you do a shot, which means you're doing about 10 shots in two minutes. Yeah. And we may have done that a couple of times through the night. Yeah. So I was sexually assaulted, um, and later it transpired that it had been filmed. I was then locked out of the house, going full circle with this. Yep. I was at my absolute lowest. So I just started developing the self-worth, um, and the drop from level one self-worth to level zero was fucking huge. Yeah. I talked to a couple of incredible women who absolutely saved my life that night. Um, they know who they are. And they've saved my life a few more times since then. I got changed and cleaned up the best I could, you know, working the hours I did. I always had a change of clothes in the car. I had some toiletries because day three at work, you just want to have a shower and not feel gross. Yeah. And I fell asleep in my car. At 4 a.m., I was woken up, dragged from it, being hit and kicked for embarrassing my parents for sleeping in my car like some homeless person. I had broken ribs at this stage. I know. And they just broke further. I So I went for a walk until I knew that dad had left for work, went inside, curled up with my partner, woke him up and I'm like, hey, look, um, I've had a call from work, like we probably need to get going, I need to get back. 
I hadn't had a call from work. I just needed to get the fuck yeah. out of there. So I tried to talk to him about what went down on the drive home. He was dismissive, saying things like, I just can't see him doing this this sort of thing, especially if I was with you. And I feel like this was his coping mechanism. As a protective figure, it was easier to deny the reality than accept that he couldn't have saved me. Yeah. But in the aftermath of all of this, I wasn't quiet. I was talking to my support people. I was truly defying my parents. They threatened to release the films that they'd made of my assaults if I didn't stop. This time I wasn't going to be silenced. I couldn't be taken away. And I refused to be intimidated back into my box. Yep. So, March 18th. Got the date a little bit wrong when we were talking earlier. 8.10am. I got an email that rocked my world. It was the catalyst for so much change, so much growth. Simply said, hey Abby, that is shocking. Time to come to Australia and leave them behind. (laughs) Wonder who said that? (laughs) At the time of writing that, did you ever imagine that we would be where we are right now? Uh, No, you would never have. No. (laughs) No. It was one of those things where, you know... When you hear those things and you, you know, the things, there's, there's certain things that aren't coming out in this story. And that is, that there's so, so many things where you go, well, why didn't this happen? Why, you know, what we're not saying is your parents have got a significant influence in their area. Yeah. You know, yes, police were contacted. Yes, that we'd gone through all of those channels. Yes, all these other things were done. Um, and, and, and for the point of this discussion, we, we're, we're sort of just keeping on track. But it was one of those things where it's like new start, new beginning. How about it? Yeah. You know, w- typically people are, oh, you're awesome, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. So I got that email. I thought about it all day at work. Yeah. Um, and it's unusual for me to be thinking about personal shit at work. Like normally I get to work, my stuff goes on a shelf. I am 100% yeah, absolutely. present. absolutely. But I was probably only about 90% present with 10% being like, fuck, could we do it? Mm. Could we do it? So I get home from work, it's probably about midnight this stage. I wake my partner up jumping into bed. I'm like, hey, I've had the best idea ever. We should sell everything and move to Melbourne. And he's used to me coming home with the best idea ever <laughs> and it really not being a great idea, you know. I think the, the best idea ever I'd had before that was, hey, we should totally go and find a couch on the side of the road and take it to the sand dunes and go ro- couch, couch surfing down the sand dunes. So... I start something with, this is the best idea ever. It may or may not be. Yeah. Um, and so his response was, look, take, tw- take some time. Think about it. Think about what you're saying. And so I woke him up at 4 a.m. Only a few hours later with, hey, honey, is six weeks long enough for us to sell everything and move? Because I found really cheap flights. Turns out six weeks was enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. So, during this moving process, I learned I was pregnant again. Yeah. Due to the timing, it could only have been my dad's. I made the right choice for me in that moment and terminated the pregnancy. Yep. And while it wasn't an easy choice, and there are still some days that I wonder if it was the right cho- choice, the reality is what's done cannot be undone. And if it was right then, then it is still right now. Yeah. So, yeah, we moved to Melbourne. Yes. It has not been all smooth sailing. We've had lockdowns and triggers. Welcome to Melbourne. By the way, this is how we deal with pandemics. Yeah, we, we locked down while we're in a very, very small hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. But not 
recommend. Would not recommend. <laughs> um, but with the triggers and things that have come up, what previously would have had me rocking a rocking mess of anxiety for days was just a blip. Yeah. It was generally fixed with a deep breath, a walk, and a gratitude for the life I now have. Yeah. Power of detaching. Power of detaching. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story. Hearing it again, I think, was more chilling than hearing it the first time. Probably because I knew it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> I knew where you were going with all, all so much of it. But there's, there's so many there's so many areas that we could dig into from here. But I think, yeah, this is definitely enough for people to digest. But one of the things, you know, one of the huge messages that we want to get across is that regardless of your journey, you are still significantly valuable. Yeah. Regardless of the pain and sufferance and trauma that you've endured and experienced, there still is a solution. 100%. And that, that you can slowly turn your life around to live a much better form of life and to start moving into purpose and start realizing that you have significant value and that you actually are worthy of love and belonging and that you are beautiful and that you are valid and the things that you've experienced are real. And there are methodologies and processes that we can go through to, to, to detach from these things. But as you hear in Abby's story, Detachment isn't just a one-trick pony. You know, sure, you've got a splinter and we know that, and that's your trauma we've got to overcome. No problem. It's real. We need to deal with it and we deal with it. And as it becomes more and more significant to you and the more impact it has to you, I'm sure it it might take a little bit longer. Yeah, Um, 100%. But absolutely is possible. You know, and I still go through, you know, because like in – going through the RISE program, we didn't deal with all of that. No. We focused on a very small subsection of that. And then it's been my journey and my path to take the tools that you've given me from the RISE program and apply it to these different things as they come up as as a big big trigger. It's like, okay, so I need to deal with this now. Fuck you, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) You know exactly where I get to at that point. I do. I do. (laughs) Yeah. And... And I work through it. And then, you know, it's like, okay, I've detached from that. Awesome. We carry on and then something else will come up and go through the same process again. Yeah. And that's just the way it is because it's, it's been a life of trauma. Yeah. So it's, I don't want people to get this expectation that, oh, I go through the RISE program once and like. Yeah. And we flick a button. Yeah. And I'm all cured. Yeah. No, it's. It's hard fucking work yeah. and sometimes it's hard fucking work repeatedly. Yeah. Until but it's worth it. Oh you yeah. know. Yeah, your your life is worth it. I look at this and go two years ago. Yeah. Talking this level of detail would have me shut down for months. Well you think about um when you came to Melbourne, we actually did a podcast and, and you were so triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that wasn't even about me. No. No. So, I mean, the journey that you've traveled, but that's the beautiful thing. It is about learning skill sets, learning new tools. And as you say, you know, because this is the important part, it's it's enabling you to then take that skill set, those tools, yeah. you know, um, and to go, okay, well, 
how do I apply it to, oh, oh, I can apply it here and that does this. And then I'm able to process it and I'm able to actually work through it. And, oh, I'm now, and that just builds a little bit of confidence, a little bit, yeah. you know, to the point where you're able to have an end-to-end discussion, you know, and you will hear that there's still, you know, sometimes through the story, um, it may sound lighter than the depths that we're going, you know, but they're all coping mechanisms. 100%. You know, they're all coping mechanisms and and anyone that's been through anything like this knows they've got the code if you're going if i'm going to talk about this stuff for the duration that we've spoke about this you know i've got to be able to do it this way but to do what you've done is absolutely incredible i mean you're a remarkable woman i I remember going back to that to that first discussion particularly into the early stages of the rise program you know when we start digging into it when we start talking about courage and when we start talking about resilience and we start talking about bravery you know and i said you know when you've suffered these traumas you've done a doctorate in these character traits and it's these character traits that are going to be able to you know enable you to travel this journey and to find recovery and as it all comes true, and at the time, it's like, you know, no, bullshit, like this is, but you're open. You, there was nothing, like, as you said, you've got to confront things through this program. 100%. You know, it, it's one of those things. It's like, no, you've traveled the journey. You're going to have to confront things, mm. but you can. Yeah. You know, and you have. Yeah. And it's incredible. So I think that is one incredible episode. We've been talking for an hour and 21 minutes. Jesus. And without doubt, you've got the lion's share of that incredible story. I am so grateful to have met you. I'm so grateful to have you in my life. I'm so proud of everything that you've done and everything that you're going through, just to becoming an absolute holistic person. Um, And it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing this story. And I know on behalf of everyone here, they would say thank you. But there's one way we've got to end this podcast. You've come this far. Yay. Stay strong. Stay strong.